You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and to the Asheroth, and worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. And the cart. Excuse me. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more Remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law and the statutes and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Israel astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and, and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought them up, brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bounds and with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gion, in the valley and in the entrance of the fish gate, and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and the altars that he had built in, on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. He threw them outside the city, and he also restored the altar of the Lord and offered sacrifices of peace offerings and thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. 
Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites of which he built high places and set up for the ashram and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house. And Amon, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for your word that it always leads us to worship. Thank you for this place that we worship in. Every Sunday, custodial staff come here and serve us so we can serve you. Would you bless them? And grateful we are for Free City Ministry staff who work so hard so that we can worship with ease. Almighty, I wish it wasn't so, but it is. I just, as a school year opens, would you please protect all who walk in this building from harm? And our kids, Lord, our kids here and our kids down there, would you hide the word of God in their hearts? and write their names in the book of life. And finally, thank you for KC, our pastor, who always helps make the scriptures more clear. For Jesus' sake, and all the people said, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, My name's Casey, and uh, if you have your Bibles, you know that we're in... uh, 2 Chronicles 33, and we're taking the next uh, just few weeks uh, to emphasize and to focus on a Bible reading plan that we encourage you to be a part of. It's called Seeing Jesus Together, and so there's an app form of that that you could uh, search right now, Seeing Jesus Together in the App Store, and you'll find it, but we, we use that to align ourselves in reading that we might be regularly reminded together of what God has done for us and what he wants to do through us and our great need that's inside of us. And so that's a lot of way to say our hearts are incredibly leaky and we need regular reminders of what God has said and what he's done in the past. Like, like we need an offensive weapon that regularly employs us to fight against the messages that are continually bombarding us in the world. Like when we look at the world, like there is a battle over your heart daily. Like beneath every commercial or headline or relational interaction, there is a worldview vying for your allegiance. And so when we go to the scriptures daily, just regular Bible reading. Just regular, you know, a systematic way that I'm being reminded of what the scriptures say. And when you do that with people, like whether you're reading with them directly or you're coming under it directly and you can ask them questions about it, there's something that the Holy Spirit starts to do in our lives. And so with that, we also sell some journals back there. 
not ours, we sell them at cost. But it just gives us a systematic way to get beneath the scriptures to talk through them that we might be changed over time. And so for the next three weeks, uh, we're pulling different passages from that Bible reading plan. This one was from a little less than a month ago. And man, it just caught me and I thought about it quite a bit. Uh, mostly because you read this and you're like, man, Manasseh was one dirtbag. Like he was terrible. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, that's more like me than different. Um, but we want to be reminded what the scriptures say and what God has done. Because what God did for Manasseh, like, I want to provoke the question, might he do that for you? Like, in a desperate moment, might he have compassion for you and rescue you and save you and put you in a position where then you can start a great project of change, which just takes effort, building up and tearing down. And so, look at this. Second uh, Chronicles 33, like we see this name Manasseh, and what we know about Manasseh was he was the 14th king of Israel. He took the throne when he was 12 years old. Like that is risky. I mean, I don't know how much time you spent with 12-year-olds, but giving them power is not a good idea. But he took the throne when he was 12 years old, and he reigned for 55 years. That is the longest reign that any king in Israel or Judah ever had, the longest reign. You know, if we keep looking, what we'll see is Manasseh's reign came after his father, Hezekiah, the good, one of the good kings of Israel. We learn about Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 29 through 32, which if you know anything about the chronicler, 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 the guy who wrote 2 Chronicles, if you know anything about him, like when he spends time, like four chapters on someone's life is a lot of information. And so it talks about the great change that King Hezekiah had upon the nation. He brought great, great reform. He built up the temple. He brought people back into worship. He expelled out of the land all of these altars that were to other gods. And he caused revival that went beyond Jerusalem into the outer parts of Israel. And then King Manasseh takes over. And his reign is so different. Hezekiah led to the repair of the temple and cleared out all the synchronizations that didn't belong there. Hezekiah recruited and led the priests to minister in the temple. And he restarted the sacrifices and the festival. Hezekiah started a rocking band that led the people in worship. Like you can read about it in chapter 29, verses 25 through 30. He led the people into great reform. But then Hezekiah died. In 2 Chronicles 33, it tells us a story and legacy of his son, Manasseh. He had the right parents, and he fell away. He, he had this really good start, like maybe being born on third base, and his life went a drastically different connect direction. His sins took him further than he could have dreamed. It hurt more people than he could have count in incredibly destructive ways. And yet when he found himself desperate, desperate, he cried out to God. And God answered his prayers and saved him. 
And, and so like this, this message, like what we see, God's incredible mercy upon him, what we see in the incredible destructive nature of sin that will not hold your boundaries, it will always step over him. It is vying for you. It wants to own you. What we see is that even if you have a strong start in life, it can be squandered away. I mean, have you ever found yourself there? Like, like thinking, man, where I started, like, can I ever get back there again? Is there hope for me? My life is going in the wrong direction, and I don't know if I can climb out of it. Like, what we see is a question, man, what happens when my sin escapes the grip of my life and it starts hurting those around me and I can't undo it? What if I really mess up? What if the consequences hurt others like a lot of people? What if people read the story of my life and they kind of react like we read the story of Manasseh's life? Does God have a place for me? Can God forgive someone like me? And so we're going to look at this in in three things. We're going to look at it in sin, grace, and change like sin it is far worse than what you think or what it shows you grace it is far more unbelievable and offered to you and change it's not possible without the grace of God but it still requires work and so let's take a look at this first the destructive power of sin And so the first thing that I want to say is sin isn't constrained because your parents love the Lord. And so look at verse 1. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And so we already kind of unpacked this, like the longest reign in Israel's history. He did incredible amounts of destruction, but his father was the great reformer of Jerusalem that led to the outer banks where he built up the church. He built up the temple. He cast out all the idols. And then all of a sudden, what we're going to see is Manasseh undoes all of that. Like his father built up the temple. He cleared out what didn't belong there. The people followed and removed the pagan altars from the land. Hezekiah, his father, was a good king, and Manasseh had parents who courageously followed after the Lord. But then it stops. Look at verse 2. And he, Manasseh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abomination of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And so Manasseh had good parents and fell away. And there's a warning in that, that although good parents is one of the best things that you can have, people who follow after the Lord, who will actually confront you and take things away from you, parents who will actually ground you. Like you should probably text your mom and dad and say, hey, thanks for all those things you did for me. Like text them now. Like they need to know that. They did a good job. Parents who will stand up against you or parents who will sacrifice for the sake of the Lord. Like these are incredible gifts, but these gifts cannot hold sin at bay. These gifts can't keep you from all sin that's in the world. These gifts have to at some point become your own. The faith of your parents have to at some point become your faith. And so we're looking at the life of Manasseh to show, man, how sin starts to pull away from us. His life becomes an example and a warning. 
And so we use this in a lot of ways, like we have stories that become examples and warnings. Some of them are well-known, they're classics. Some of them are well-known to families because, you know, a father keeps bringing them up. And so we've got one story like that, and it always starts off, have I ever told you the story of Dan Zosky? And my kids just moan. Dan Zosky is one of my best friend's dad. And when he was a young man, he was a carpenter, and through an accident, he lost his right hand. And when he was going through recovery, they couldn't save the hand at all. Um, the doctor looked at him and he said, hey, I could write you this script that puts you on you know, permanent disability, but you won't be happy. And Dan Zosky kind of had that glint in his eye and he's like, yeah, I don't want that. And so Dan Zosky was a handyman and he actually cut down my tree single-handedly with a chainsaw, literally single-handedly with a chainsaw. And I always tell the story because whatever's facing my kids, I'm like, you got two hands, you know? I'm like, it didn't stop Dan. Why is it going to stop you? And so it becomes a story to motivate or a story to warn. And so we look at the story of Manasseh to motivate, and we look at it to warn that it doesn't matter where you start. At some point, your actions and your faith have to become your own. And so the, the first thing that we see in the two verses is sin isn't constrained because your parents love the Lord. You know, the, the second thing that, that we see, we start in verse 3, and it says, Sin plants itself in our hearts and eventually grows out into our actions. Like it doesn't just stay there. The things that we foster will grow out. And so look at verse 3. It says, For he, and I want you to look at all these action verbs. It says, For he built the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals. And he made Ashroth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And so that's a lot of building, erecting, and making. Like, that is like a lifetime achievement kind of stuff. Like, that is a long resume of what his work and his actions did. Manasseh spent a lot of time, resources, effort, leadership, equity, to build all in the wrong direction. Like, he had to make plans for this to come about. He had to cast vision and make policy for this to happen. He worked hard. And then look at verse 3. At some point, we have these words where it says building, erecting, you know, built, made. But then all of a sudden, we have this word worshipped. See, what he did exposed the worship of his heart. His actions were worshipful actions, building up what was actually in his heart, what actually was coming out. It usually works that way, that the circumstances of my life, they don't create my sin. They become the occasion of my sin. And so all of a sudden, like looking at your hands and what we do and where we spend our time and what we think about and dream about, the heart becomes the loading dock for the actions. Sin has a way of making its way from hypothetical to actual. Coveted thoughts enslave us in action and never in the way that they tell us they're going to do it. And so first, like sin plants itself in our heart and then it grows into our actions of what we do. And then sin knows no bounds. It will grow beyond your ability to stop it. 
Like in verses 6 through 8, I actually want to work backwards. But so jump to verse 7. And the first thing that we see here, it won't stay where you tell it. In verse 7 it says, And the carved images of the idols that he made, he set in the house of the Lord. And then it says, Of which God said to David and to Solomon his son. And then all that description from verse 7 to 8 is like, You better not do that. And so what he built outside of the walls of the temple moved inside. Sin doesn't stay where you tell it to. Like, like we think that we, we can hold that sin in, in one place in our life, but it constantly is seeping into others. It won't stay where you tell it to stay. It won't stay in your heart or in your thoughts. It will eventually come out. It won't stay on your web browser. It will get in your actions. Sin doesn't obey. Sin is like, like sand at the beach. We just had a little family get together at Galveston, the cheap beach. And so, um, which I'm actually, I am super down with Galveston. Like we, we could drive right on the beach. Uh, there weren't sky risers behind us. They were just houses. I mean, it was super great. However, there were oil derricks out there and there's all this like uh, little petroleum balls everywhere. Like I'm think, I think people need to be aware of this. Like, you know, we read an article about it and it says, oh yeah, wash it out with soap and water. Don't use kerosene or gasoline. It is seriously hard to wash it away. But man, we had a blast. But you get off the beach and you know you have sand on your feet, but you get into your car and you find out that you had sand everywhere and it seeps into your car and it's in all the crevices and it comes out later in your life and you can't expel it. You need like an exorcist to get rid of it. It's always there. It seems to find its way into every crack of your life. It seems to find its way into every place that's overlooked. It doesn't stay. That's what sin is like. It has a way of clinging and hiding in your life, only later to show itself. It has a way of making itself over every imposed border. And like you try to clean it up and you try to clean it up and there just seems to be more and more of it. It won't stay where you tell it. You know, the picture of verse 7 and 8 made its way from the outside in the land to the inside of the temple. Whatever line you set up, it won't stop it. It won't adhere to that boundary. Sin doesn't stay where we tell it to stay. Sin has a destination that's darker than what you think. Look at verse 6. The end of verse 6 it says, and he used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And like that is like, wow, that is like occultic type language. Like we move from building and erecting to omens, sorcery, and necromancers. I didn't know what a necromancer was, and I'm still not really sure because when I looked it up, it just brought up video game links, like people playing video games. And I was like, I mean, that looks super evil. I don't know. But like, I don't know. But it went from like doing things, accomplishing things in your life to this really dark, occultic, like spiritual language. See, sin doesn't come to you and say, hey, do you want to go down in history as a really horrible person who led a whole nation to apostasy? Like put that on your LinkedIn. It doesn't come and say that. It doesn't come and say like, hey, do you want to grind the face of the poor to make, to make profit for yourself? It doesn't say that. 
Sin doesn't come in and say, hey, do you want to destroy your family and injure your kids from relationships forevermore? It doesn't say that. Sin comes in and starts to whisper to you and it starts to appeal. Don't you deserve this? You've worked so hard. Or why don't we take this corner here? Or, you know, those rules apply for them, but not for you. It shows you part of it. The building and erecting of verses 3 through 5 turn to this dark spiritual language in verses 6 through 8. It won't stay where you tell it. Its destination is darker than you think. And then third on this, it will take more than you want to give. The first part of verse 6, it says, He, Manasseh, burned his sons, plural, as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Like that is some pretty dark stuff. It's hard to undo that type of thing. It's hard to get past those kind of actions, the finality of that, of I sacrifice my kids to the work of my hands and to pagan gods that drew line after line that says, I won't go any further, and now it's taken everything. Like the progression. It wants more than what it says. It will take more than you want to give. It is darker than what you think. In verses 9 to 10, it will grow beyond your ability to stop it. All the while, deafening your ears to the voice of God. In verse 9 it says, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Like the description is dark. This describes something that, that takes and takes. It's describing something that is preying upon you. It's describing sin as a predator that knows no bounds, has one intention no matter what it says. It's describing what God warns Cain about in Genesis 4. And so if you're familiar with that story... Cain is growing in jealousy of his brother Abel. And God comes to him like his great counselor and he says this, like, why are you angry at your brother? Why are you depressed? It says downcast. It means depressed. Why are you down and why are you angry? Do you even know? And then he moves to encouragement where he says, if you do what's right, you will be accepted. I want to accept you. I'm not against you. Your brother is not against you. Like, trust me. And so there's this warning, there's this encouragement, and then this warning again about the nature of sin. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so the picture is sin is like a tiger and it's crouching. It looks smaller than what it actually is. It's trying to blend in. It's trying to look like it's not threatening because it wants to attack you. And that, that tiger doesn't care about the boundaries in your home to keep it in one room of your life and not the other. That tiger cannot be put on a leash to be controlled because that leash cannot protect you from it. And that leash has no power to really hold on to it when it wants to pounce on someone else. There's this warning that it will grow beyond your ability to stop it. And it has a way of deafening your ears to the voice of God all along the way. We see this list unpacked in Manasseh's life and it talks about the destructive power of sin. Do you see it in your life? 
Like, do you see tendencies in your life that you might see played out in people's lives further, but it brings an awareness in you of like, man, if I don't fight this now, if I don't see this for what it is, it won't stop the destructive power of sin. Number two, the unbelievable grace of God. Like, first we see the violent grace of God. Like, like, look at this in verse 11. People talk a lot about hitting rock bottom before conversion, but I think they might speak a little too soon because this describes something that's a little beneath most people. And so look at verse 11. It says, Therefore, the Lord brought upon the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Like being captured with hooks and chains, it's near the bottom. Like it's near the place where you're like, I don't have a whole lot of options. Like conversion at that point is not like, man, you really stood up to your sin. It's like you didn't have anything else to go to. And so look at this, like this is painful. But this is the moment that led to the repentance of his life that changed the nation back. Like, this is the violent grace of God. And even when God's grace is violent, it's still grace. And we see stuff like this when it's in our lives. We start to say, man, God, why? How could you do this? Like, what is going on? And we start to doubt him. But, like, we see it and we're like, how, how, how can you change? So the violent grace of God comes in violently to wake us up. And this is the first step of all the change that happened. Like what we see is he hits this rock bottom place of chains of brong and hooks and imprisonment. And then we see some nature of grace. The first thing we see is the grace of God is for the guilty. Grace only works when you know that you need it. Look at verse 12. And when he was in distress, yeah, hooks and chains. When he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord. This moment of distress to wake up Manasseh was the grace of God. Before Manasseh was ready to pray, he needed to experience pain. God brings pain to wake us up to a deep need. We, take, we need a lot of grace, like a lot of grace, not just a little bit of grace. Like we have to realize that grace is for the guilty and I am guilty. To drive this story home, Jesus tells a story in Luke 18 about two people who go to church. One is the Pharisee and he stands up in the front, he opens up his arms and he says, God, man, thank you Thank you, I'm not like these people, that I'm not, you know, someone who is, you know, does extortion. I'm not someone who steals. I'm not someone like this tax collector. Man, thank you for the grace upon my life. Thank you. And then he describes the tax collector in the back beating his breast. And he says, Lord, have mercy on a sinner like me. And then he poses the question, who went home justified? See, the ones who go home justified are the ones who realize that they have guilt and that they need it. Grace only works when you know that you need it. Grace only works when you can get past the offense of it. Like verse 12, it goes on to say, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his father. Like it took a lot for Manasseh to get to a place where he could see that he needed it. But he got there and he said he humbled himself. And so grace will always offend you. 
Grace is going to look at you and it's going to say, you don't have enough to fix this and the cost is too great for you. And then it humbles you even further to show you that the cost was the death of God upon the cross for your sins. It will offend you because it's unbelievably costly. In verse 13, he says, he prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty, and he heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. See, at that point, Manasseh knew that this grace was precious. He, he knew it was valuable, but he didn't know what it would take to bring the forgiveness or what it would cost God. He didn't know how God would bring that all about. He didn't know that one day Jesus would walk to Calvary and carry a wooden cross. He didn't know that one day Jesus would take the wrath of God in his place, but he knew it was valuable. He knew that God was God. He knew that he had offense and that he needed grace. He knew that that was what he needed. And so grace was for him. Grace is lavish. It is unbelievable. It is costly. But it's also offensive. When I was doing student ministry, um, we, uh, we programmed our own camp. We did it with another couple churches. And uh, we would spend like the whole day kind of building one thing to the next. And so like, you know, one day we would talk about building our lives on something, like the root of our lives. And so we made all these Jenga sets and we put like different idolatries and different sins, like, you know, I want to be popular or, you know, whatever on there. And they would play Jenga and it'd get to where it's like teetering. And then the leader would stop and say, okay, what happens if I move this block? And they'd move the block and it all come tumbling down and, you know, that's fun. Uh, but, like, if we build our lives on something else that's not stable, it's going to falter. And so all of these days we kind of build something. The whole week was building to just this idea, man, we need the grace of God more than anything else. It is what you're created for. In the grace of God is joy forevermore. Like, you need forgiveness because your sin is deep. And the only thing that goes deeper than your sin is the grace of God. And so we're getting there. And that last day we had the students and they all, like, uh, organized and executed parts of the service. And I, this was another youth pastor's idea. I thought it was a horrible idea. I'm like, I know my kids, man. They're going to screw it all up. And so we had this like prayer walk and kind of going through it. And then before we went into worship, like the worship band was playing um, and all that stuff. Before we went into worship, there was a station to wash feet. And so, you know, you kind of go through. And I, I was about to walk past that station because, man, I've got like, I, I don't like my feet. I like to hide them. I don't like flip-flops. My second toe is freakishly longer than my big toe. And it's just not right. And, I mean, I didn't really want people looking at my, I mean, it wasn't even about that. I was like, man, they're going to look at my feet and be like, man, what, what is wrong with your hygiene? Like, I'm worried about the genes of your life. Are you going to pass those on to kids? I'm like, I'm just worried about it. And I go to pass by that station, and I felt like guilt. I just felt like the presence of the Lord. I felt like he was saying, oh, it's good enough for your kids, but it's not good enough for you. And so I got in line, and I sat down, and this little girl, tiny little girl, her name was Annie, Annie Arnone, a man without, with no jokes, with great gentle and care and reverence, Man, I slip my shoes off, and she brings warm water over, and she starts to wash my feet. And I remember feeling like, I'm so uncomfortable. I need to do something for her. 
like, here's some money. You know, I mean, I don't know what I need to do. I just remember feeling like, I need to repay you. I need to owe you something. And she finished, and really, like, the, the look on my face was this deep feel in my soul where I was almost like my mouth agape, like, expression of, like, what can I do for you? How do I repay this back? And so I put my shoes back on, and I start walking. Before I get into the pavilion where worship is happening, man, something about the grace of God hit me, and I felt like God said in my heart, you hate grace you hate it because grace exposes inability and inability scares you more than anything and it was a moment before we're going to worship there's a part of me that hates grace i like to give it because i think it says something about me but when i receive it it's uncomfortable because it's a price i can't pay And so we see this amazing grace of God. It's unbelievable. I mean, there's no way that Manasseh could talk about his life and get to the place of like, well, I mean, I, you know, I decided this wasn't working out. He was chained and hooked. I mean, I don't even know what that means. Nowhere to go. And he cried out in desperation and God answered. He needed help. He needed rescue. He needed to be saved. Manasseh needed God's unbelievable grace and he received God's grace. He received it because he knew he was guilty. He knew that grace was for him, that he couldn't do it. He received it because he knew that he needed it. He cried out, in desperation, and God was moved by compassion and saved him. And so Manasseh is about to go back home. Home is still a mess. There's still altars in the temple. There's still omens being sought, sorcery being performed, necromancers necromancing, whatever that is. I looked it up. I just saw the video games. There's still things going on. There's probably still children being burned as sacrifices. Like he needs big change. And change is hard work. Change takes effort. Dallas Willard, he talks about this where he says, Grace is not opposed to effort, but it's opposed to earning. See, after repentance, a lot of times it's very clear, like there's things that I need to change in my life. And so by looking at this, the hard work of change, I just want to emphasize two areas that we see. We see Manasseh coming back and he's building stuff up and then he's tearing stuff down. And so first, he's building stuff up in verse 15. Like the work of change requires tearing down. Manasseh tore down idols. He tore down altars. And he removed them from the city. And so verse 15, it says, And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord. And all the altars that he had built on the mountains of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and threw them outside of the city. Like in repentance, the walking out is what do I need to tear down? What do I need to throw out of my life? There's always something to tear down. There's always something to remove out of our life after repentance. It takes work. It takes effort. But it's not about earning. It's about responding to the unbelievable grace of God. Like the hard work of change will require tearing down and removing. It'll also require building up. Manasseh built up defenses. He built up people to protect the city. Like, like look at verses 14 through 16. 
Like it just says, man, Manasseh built up the outer defense walls. You see that? He, he raised up commanders to defend the people and defend the cities. He rebuilt the altar of the Lord and led people to sacrifice offerings, and specifically for peace and thanksgiving. Like if you don't know where to start in your battle of change, like start here. He built up defenses to stop sin. He raised up people for accountability to help him fight sin, to help guard his life. And he established practices to grow peace in thanksgiving. Like this is hard work of change, but it's not earning God's favor. Verse 17, it says, Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places but only to the Lord their God, which was commanded not to, which just is a reminder that in this life, you're always going to battle sin. You're not going to get to a place where sin can't touch you and you're beyond temptation. That's why we're doing the next three weeks in a Bible reading plan to try to bully you into reading your Bible so that you will be reminded of all the grace that God has for you. And you might even see yourself, like right now, some of us are like, oh my gosh, I need this. Some of us are like, man, Manasseh was really messed up. I'm glad I'm not that bad. Remember the story, the Pharisee, I'm not like these people. Remember that. But we see this, it's never fully done. Verses 18 through 20, it just wraps up the summary of Manasseh's life. Listen, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayers to his God, the words of the seers, that's prophet, sometimes in places of the Old Testament they call it prophet seers, so this is probably Isaiah and some of the contemporary prophets of the day. The word of the prophets who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. They're written down. We just read it. You can also read a more lengthy account in 2 Kings. And so it's written down. You can read it. It says, And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sins and his faithlessness, the site on which he built the high places and set up the ashram and the images before, he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers or prophets. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house. And Amon, his son, reigned in his place. You know, Manasseh had this great dad. He had this great start, the great reformer, Hezekiah. Four chapters in Chronicles, it's a big deal. Manasseh fell into horrible, dark sin. Manasseh led people into sin. Manasseh humbled himself and cried out to God, and God rescued him and brought him back to Jerusalem. And then Manasseh had a lot of work to change. He tore down and he built up. And Manasseh wasn't able to fully rid his life of sin, but it changed so much. And the question would be, what do you need? Like the saving power of God's grace, what will you need to change? And the answer is you'll need effort to change. You'll need to tear some things down. You'll need to build some things up. You'll need to employ people around your life to say, hold my life. Love me enough to confront me. Take God's side against my life that I might take God's side against my life in my time of need. Hold me accountable to read the scriptures. Let's do something crazy. Let's memorize scripture. I mean, if Jesus needed to do it to defeat temptation in the wilderness, you might need to do it. 
And so effort, it never earns. But responding to God's grace will always take effort. So ultimately, what do you need? You need the saving power of God's grace. Grace is not opposed to effort, but it's opposed to earning. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. He says this, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace of God was made available to you through the atoning death of Jesus. He died in your place. The grace of God sent the Holy Spirit to reside in you, pointing you to the dangers of sin in your life, the dangers of sin that's beneath the sin that you know about, pointing them out, but also pointing you to what's really true about Jesus. It takes work to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, and sometimes it hurts. Tearing down sin and throwing it out of your life is hard. To build up defenses and accountability can be uncomfortable and to establish practices to grow in peace and thanksgiving. It's going to take effort. But weekly reminders of coming to worship and coming to the table, remembering that this table is provided for all those who follow after Jesus and all those who fail week in and week out, and all those who say, I need the grace of God. We come together and we sing songs to try to drive them into our heart, the truths of what's there. We come under prayers and scripture and teaching, all of this trying to remind our hearts that there's a reality beneath that's more firm than the stage that I'm standing on. There's a reality that's more true. Our hope is in the mercy and grace of God. And when we entreat to him, He's moved and he answers. And we can know that because Jesus lives to intercede for us at the right-hand side of the Father. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, as we uh, move just to communion, I pray that you would bring just really to mind that whatever we have, we can actually carry with us to the communion table. Or whatever we have, we can meet with someone to pray for us in the back. And Lord, I pray that you would give us an idea. Just a simple idea. Is there something in my life that I need to tear down? Is there something in my life that I need to throw out? Is there something in my life that I need to build up? And Lord, like there's so many things that you could, directions you could lead us. Would you lead us in one direction? And Lord, I pray that you would put upon our hearts just a need for the scriptures and the promises of God and the need for accountability. And we would start something new. And it's scary to look at someone like, hey, you want to meet up with me and hold me accountable not to sin? I don't want to be Manasseh. I don't want my story to sound that way. But Lord, by your grace, would you empower those things and the uncomfortable experience that might be? Would you use that and bring life? Would your grace saturate it? Lord, we need you. Being a Christian is not being above sin. It's not taking us out of this world so we don't have to face sin, but it is expelling us from the power of sin that through the power of the Holy Spirit we can change. So two options for you. One is coming down to take communion. There's going to be instructions up on the screen. The other one is, man, something that I want to be common practice. Like if you need prayer, 
grab someone next to you or there will be someone for you behind the black screens back there just to pray for you. That is not for like the really messed up people. That is for all you all. You all messed up. That you just come and man, God put this in my heart, just pray for me. Lord, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.